When you hear non-arms-length income, you probably think of Section 109 of the CIS Act, but there is actually a much more potent non-arms-length rule, and that one sits in the Income Tax Assessment Act 1997, Section 295-550. Welcome to episode 132 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. Let's go back to Peter Bobman of Argel Lawyers, talking about the much overlooked but very powerful income tax rule around non-arms length income, section 295-550. Two meanings of non-arms length, because there's two sets of laws. There's okay. superannuation law and there's tax law. Which I didn't actually... Realize I had heard all the time about Section 109 in the CIS Act, yeah. but Section 295 in the ITAA 97. That's, that's actually out of the two for reasons you may hear me articulate. It's actually more important of the two, the second. You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. I've done a bit of good comparison between non-arms length as it exists in the CIS Act in Section 109 and as it exists in the Income Tax Assessment Act 1997, Section 295-550. 27 lines of legislation for 109 versus 43 lines, 70% more in terms of the tax laws. And then with the introduction of non-arms length expenses as well, it's actually extended it to 63 lines. What am I saying? In terms of legislation, non-arms length from an income tax law perspective is one and a third times longer than it is in the CIS Act. Draw from that as you may wish. What I draw from it is that non-arms length for tax law purposes, has much greater depth, much greater potential application, and therefore should be considered as a real risk. Because when you look at the two together, as I've already said, Section 109, hey, it's a non-arm's length, but it's very shallow. So it's really quite possible that a transaction may not come within non-arm's length for CIS Act, that is to say... There is no breach, but nevertheless, the tax commissioner, who in the context of self-managed super funds happens to be the same regulator, but nevertheless, the tax commissioner could then press non-arms length from an income tax law perspective and treat the relevant income as subject to that top marginal rate of taxation, 45% instead of 15 on income, 45% instead of the practical outcome of 10% to the extent of capital gains held for more than 12 months. It's worthwhile noting as well that Section 295.550, well, it's actually been around a long time, so don't regard this as something new. In fact, it's been around since 1964 in the former Sections 23F in subsection 16 to 18. Now, again, some of you with grey hair or less hair and maybe listening may recognise that. For others of you, it may come as a surprise. Well, I'm here to help you to understand the concept of a portion of the income 
of a super fund being separated from the rest of the money and income of the super fund and subject to the top rate of tax has actually been around for some 55 years, since 1964. This is not a new concept. It's an important concept. Be aware of it. Have a look at tax ruling TR7 of 2006. You'll see that this is where the commissioner expresses a view that the commissioner is required to be satisfied not merely of a connection between a taxpayer and the person whom the taxpayer transferred in the context of the particular transaction, but also of the fact that they were not dealing with each other at arm's length. So again, we're not concerned when we're looking at income tax law now that the parties were connected, that the parties were not arm's length. What we're concerned about is the dealings with each other. What we're concerned about is the transaction. Again, I take you back to paperwork. Paper, paper, paper. The greater the paper that's available, the more the paper that's available to support and justify the position, the greater the potential that the client super fund will be able to sustain an audit or review or a potential adverse commentary. One thing that some may not be aware of is the way 295.550 works. Rather technically, what 295.550 says is when you're working out the income of a super fund, You've actually got to start with working out what is the non-arm's length income. It's not the other way around. It's not as if we work out what ordinary income is and then carve out of that the non-arm's length and then it gets subject to the highest rate of tax. The actual the way the legislation is written, I invite you to read it for yourself, is that you work out what is non-arm's length income first. And it's only what's left over that then becomes ordinary superannuation low-rate accessible income. Am I making a mountain out of a molehill? Is that too fine a point to really address? What it means is it's how one approaches this area. That's what it really means. It's about how one approaches it. In particular, and certainly this is the commissioner's view, for example, once non-arm's length, always non-arm's length. A number of years ago, I had a situation where some clients, fellows, had a jointly run self-managed superannuation fund. The superannuation fund held units in a unit trust. The unit trust then held a range of properties, real estate, some five properties. Of the five properties, three were let, very demonstrably clear, at arm's length. No connection whatsoever with the parties. Two were let back to the sponsoring employer. The position the tax office took is that the rent paid by the sponsoring employer was excessive. Sadly, for those clients at the time, it was actually pretty clear that it was to a factor of three times. They went far too far. But what was the view of the tax office? Well, the view of the tax office was that the result of that non-arm's length, remember we're not talking CIS anymore, we're talking income tax, is that the whole of the income of that unit trust was therefore tainted. So the commissioner did not say that only that portion of the presently entitled income of the unit trust passing up to the super fund that represented the excessive amount or that represented the rent back to the sponsoring employer. It was actually the whole of it. This is why it's important to understand that the way 295.550 works is you actually start with working out what is non-arm's length income because in that particular example... 
that I had to deal with some years ago, it was the whole of the income coming out of the unit trust, not merely the proportionate amount. So it's not a leftover, it's a starting point. It's very good to actually think of 295 because you might think the SMSF or the super fund bought something at a lower cost, yeah. so therefore it doesn't harm the super fund, no. it's all fine. But there's actually the other side of the transaction, and so 295 might catch the other side of the transaction and might say, okay, mm. the, the, the SMSF is not disadvantaged, but the other side is disadvantaged, and therefore we want to see more income on the other side. Correct, yeah, that's exactly right, and exactly right. Let's now break down non-arm's length income in 295.550 into its four parts. As I've already mentioned, it's one and a third times with the extended provisions longer than non-arm's length as it sits in superannuation. And again, as I've said, a super fund can survive a non-arm's length CISACT claim. The challenge is, can it also survive a non-arm's length income tax? Because they're two separate things, they're done in two separate ways. There are four parts, as I've already said, to non-arm's length income as it relates to 295.550. Those four parts are, does income come from a fixed entitlement trust? Or, is there income derived from a scheme? Or, are there private company dividends? Or... Are there non-fixed, for example, discretionary trust distributions that are made to the super fund? They're the four things you're looking at. Dealing with them in reverse, effectively what 295.550 says is all income that has some form of discretionary element, that is to say that the reason the super fund got it was because some other trust exercised discretion in favour of the super fund. Then the whole of that income is non-arms-length income, top rate of taxes applied. So never have your family trust distribute to your SMSF. So the simple rule of thumb, don't have the family trust distribute to the self-managed super fund. That's a simple rule of thumb. Top marginal rate of tax will be payable. The next one is private company dividends. The assumption is that if it's a private company dividend, then more likely than not, there is the risk of non-arms-length income. The question then becomes, if it's a private company dividends, is this inconsistent with an arms-length dealing, that character of the private company dividends? If the answer is yes, then it will be treated as non-arms-length income. Now, there was a case that really bears this point out because the superannuation fund acquired shares in a private company and that private company then held shares in the listed company. The super fund acquired those shares at a discounted rate, in the private company, that is. What then later flowed was that this public company was paying dividends to the private company, which then on-paid the dividends via its shareholding to the super fund. What the taxpayer tried to argue is that the income that ultimately made its way to the super fund was really sourced to public company shares, which of its very nature had to be on an arm's length basis. But what the commissioner successfully argued was that the income that 
the commissioner was complaining about was the income that the super fund was receiving. And what the super fund was receiving was income from the private company. Yes, the income from the private company may have been sourced to the public company share dividends, but it was inconsistent with the value by which the super fund originally acquired those shares in the public company. That inconsistency which led to the conclusion that the whole of that income, notwithstanding it passing through the private company, notwithstanding that it originated to public company shares, the whole of it was not arm's length. So I suggest that if you've got private company dividends, work on the assumption that there's a great risk of it being non-arm's length income. What you're trying to now do is to demonstrate that the income that flows in connection with those private company shares is not inconsistent with an arm's length dealing. The third way of looking at non-arm's length is, is there just a scheme? Is there a non-arm's length transaction? If the answer is that there is a scheme, and we all know from the likes of a whole range of cases in this area, Peabody's in particular, a scheme is really just a sequence of connected events. There's nothing derogative about the character of a scheme. If we have a sequence of connected events and in the course of that there's a non-arm's length transaction and the income is greater than might have been expected, the tax office can apply these non-arm's length provisions again. We've actually got, interestingly enough, the reverse of how Section 109 operates. Section 109 talks about if the income to the other party, if the benefit to the other party is not greater than what it would be. For tax law purposes, it works in the other direction. If the income is greater than what might have been expected ultimately passing its way through to superannuation, then we have a non-arm's length income situation, top right of tax applying. The fourth is income from a fixed entitlement trust. And this is particularly targeting clearly, the unit trust arrangements. There was a time when some parties would seek to, dare I say, wash the character of the relationships by using unit trusts as the go-between. That's what this part of Section 295.550 is targeting. Is there an entitlement or income gained under a scheme not at arm's length? Is the income greater than might have been expected Is there something at the fixed entitlement trust level which is of a non-arm's length nature or layers deeper than that and it can trace through layers deeper than that? If the answer is yes, then we have non-arm's length income and again, the whole of that income is then treated as non-arm's length, the whole, the whole lot, including any components of it. As my example I expressed earlier, including any part of the otherwise income that's flowing that might be of a full, independent, easily provable, arm's-length nature. What happens is the lot is tainted. If you have two unit trusts that distribute into a discretionary... or If you have a unit trust that distributes into a discretionary trust, that's fine. But if you have a discretionary trust that distributes into a unit trust, that's the problem. That's correct. But if you've also got a unit trust that the taxpayer sells something into it cheaply, so it then sells it at a higher rate, that's a problem too because that profit goes through the unit trust to the super fund. 
so again, just to reflect on those four components of Section 295.550, in effect, what the CIS Act may not get you on, the Income Tax Assessment Act will and can. And what it will target is the whole of the income, not merely the tainted component. Once non-arm's length, always non-arm's length. So, for example, if I buy shares in a private company at a discounted basis, the fact that I bought it at a discounted basis will cause all of my income dividend distributions to be non-arm's length, but also so too the future capital gain that will be derived on the resale or remonetization of those shares at some future time. Acquiring real estate at a discounted value, whole of the rent until whenever it gets sold will be treated as non-arm's length and the capital gain that is later derived on the sale at above that transaction value, that original non-arm's length transaction value, the whole of the gain will be treated as non-arm's length income, top margin rate of tax applying. And the amendment period can't save you. And there's no ability to hide behind your Section 170 and your liability limitation periods. Why? Because it simply follows from the fact. Of course, as you might appreciate, if the land property is acquired at a low non-arm's length value and held for 10 years, it's in that 10th year that the sale transaction component occurs. So there is no Section 170 limitation that applies. It's just a matter of calculating the capital gain across the 10-year period. And if the starting point is non-arm's length, the whole of the capital gain over that whole period will be non-arm's length. Plus the rental payments. As well as the rental payments over the whole period. Do you see why paperwork is so very important? Do you see why it is just really quite appropriate, as I do, to tell the clients to panic? If they're going to engage in exotic, a bit testing, a bit envelope stretching activities, then provided it's not to the point of breaking that envelope, stuff the envelope full of paperwork, and the character of that paperwork is demonstrating why it's arm's length. It's providing contemporaneous records as to why it's arm's length, why it's an arm's length transaction, though there's an admission that the parties to the particular transaction were not arm's length. Welcome back. For me, this episode was quite an eye-opener since I had always focused on Section 109 of the CIS Act when there was a discussion of a non-arms-length transaction and I never really much considered the income tax rules around non-arms-length income. In the next episode, episode 133, Peter Bobbin will talk about a new non-arms-length concept that actually started as of 1st of July 2018, so is already in place. Non-arms-length expenses. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.